0: In the performative hustling community or the struggle porn community, the only way to keep a lot of those people engaged who might not be having much success is to say, like, just keep working harder, keep working harder, keep working harder, and, like, you'll get your rewards. But the world just, like, doesn't work that way.
2: Hey yo, Welcome back to the Tropical
1: NBA Podcast. Bossman is here.
2: Hey, we're in the pod shop.
1: That's right. It's Thursday morning. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Speaking of mornings, we've been doing a, a live stream every day from the pod shop at 12 noon New York City time. And it's been cool because TMBA listeners who are subscribed to our mailing list, of course, because they'll no, they'll be notified of these things, you can find our mailing list is dope. You get a free copy of our book, a PDF, of PDF. course. PDF, now, I couldn't convince Bossman to spring for the printed copy, but the PDF copy is 100% free. Check it out at www.tropicalmba.com. Become a premium subscriber. All of our subscribers are premiums. We're going to send you good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look. Here, today we got a premium interview from a absolutely uh, a super impressive agency owner who's got a lot of something we've been calling emotional margin. He's got a lot of margin. He's got a lot of interesting theories about how he's scaled a multi-million dollar agency. A really cool interview um, it was actually recorded before all this crazy ass-ish went down. And so what I wanted to do here at the top, Ian, is you know just review some of the things we've been talking about on our daily live stream and address this enormous challenge that we're all facing from uh, an entrepreneurial and business perspective, which is this coronavirus. So. Just some overview, and you give us some thoughts about uh, where how things sit. Like this week, we're recording this Thursday. I mean, we're recording this this week. I mean,
2: yeah, I mean, we're basically quarantined at my uh, on my property. Yeah, you're like living behind my house, mm-hmm. uh, and <laughs> so it's been it's been interesting times, but it's been very exciting times, and that's a lot of what we've been talking about on the uh, on the live stream from the pod shop is uh, how exciting these times are. You know, we were we were reflecting actually, like if you're, a, if you're a sports writer right now, like what are you doing? You're like going back and watching like old tapes. Yeah, you know yeah. you're like you're really digging up content, whereas like generally those people, they have a really easy job. It's like there's five games on a day. It's like just turn on the microphone, let's talk about the game. Right. This is our time for that, which is interesting <laughs> to me, because businesses are failing, businesses are going up and to the right, faster than the known cases of coronavirus. I mean, crazy things are happening right now based on the news and in the world situation.
1: Yeah. One of my uh, highlights from these live streams is this idea of the chickens coming home to roost because so much of what we've done here at the TMBO over the past decade is roll out theories and lots of them are unfalsifiable, you know, like the guys say it takes a thousand days to replace your income. And it's like, well, unfortunately you have to sort of falsify that theory on your own. But in terms of, of this happening, we talked about people who are over leveraged. We talk about people who put too much money in their market. We talk about some of the problems that we see and frankly, the dangerous ideas that are being perpetrated by some and certainly not all, but some of the gurus and things like financial independence and retire early. It's interesting to see whether your theory is timeless or whether it's timely because a lot of these things that we've prepared for, that we've built for, they're being put to the test right now. And that's a lot of what we're discussing on these live streams. We know a lot of y'all there are, are... locked down are a little bit restless. A lot of us are scared for all kinds of legitimate reasons, but this hour, let this be a meditation to you and your future and your opportunities. There's got to be a little part of you. you know, we talked about this the other day, Ian, the entrepreneur wants a chance to step up to the plate. You know, The business owner might be really suffering right now because you're having to make tough decisions about payroll, about investments, about where the business is going to go. But the business owner is not the same thing as that entrepreneurial part of you. The entrepreneurial part of you has to be a little bit excited about the challenge laid in front of you and about the opportunities that exist for us. And That's what today's episode is all about, an entrepreneur who took those opportunities and turned them into a multi-million dollar agency. All right, so we're going to switch gears away from all that. Come join me with a chat with one of the most interesting young entrepreneurs around, someone whose blog I read with relish. And I follow him on the Twitter sphere as well.
0: My name is Nat Eliason. I'm the founder and CEO of a marketing agency called Growth Machine. We primarily do SEO and content marketing. And then I also uh, write a lot on my site, which is nateliason.com. And my wife and I run a cafe here in Austin called Cup and Leaf.
1: The cafe, of course, is currently closed. In fact, Nat and I recorded this conversation a few weeks ago in early March, and it seems incredible now that off the mic, the first thing I asked him about, Ian, was whether or not he thought we should cancel DC Austin. Anybody smart I could get on the phone, I wanted to hear not only what their opinion was, but what their thought process was. This was just as Nat was thinking about whether or not to close his cafe based here in Austin. And just to say someone left a very valid comment in our show notes, Um, you know, of course we post every episode, Ian and and some listeners comment, that it would be better to run these interviews just after they were recorded, which we are going to endeavor to do here in the very near future, in which we did last week. But sometimes we just have to, you know, hold them due to life events. And that happens, but, but we'll be always be sure to tell you when these things were recorded. So I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation, which covers some of the things that Nat has been writing about and I've enjoyed, including struggle porn or this thing like hustle porn we talk about. Don't worry, all this is going to become clear. Uh, Investing, particularly in relation to the distinction between money and wealth. And then towards the end, we really get into the nuts and bolts of one of the toughest entrepreneurial businesses. That's the agency model, one which I know many listeners are involved in. Just how do you make it a success and not an all-consuming pain in the butt? We kicked off this conversation discussing an issue that I'm sure is foremost in all of our minds at the moment. How do we begin to deal in our business with the increasingly precarious situation created by the coronavirus pandemic? And just a reminder, this interview was recorded in early March.
0: The main thing is we've already just been thinking about cutting out any unnecessary expenses, right? So any side projects, any redesign type things, anything that's not essential spend to the agency and to our employees, we're just going to start cutting preemptively now. Because unfortunately, I do think that marketing agencies can be in the category of like first to go when businesses start cutting expenses especially for the newer relationships with the companies that we already have an established working relationship. And we've shown ROI and all of that. That's not a concern. But I do think that if we are coming into a major recession, which it kind of seems like we are, then that's going to be an environment where new companies aren't willing to take a six month bet on a new marketing channel, right? They're probably just going to hunker down, cut ad spend to what they know works and try to ride it out. It's not an exciting position to be in, but it's kind of how you survive something like this.
1: Well, this reminds me of, of an article you wrote about quitting the stock market. Yeah. And maybe we could just talk about risk in that regard a little bit. Certainly, you must feel good about quitting the stock market as we speak. But the quote that popped out of that article, the question you have to ask yourself, though, is could you double your money in 10 years on your own? And what other opportunities do you give up by making that money illiquid? For anyone with some interest in entrepreneurship, it's hard to imagine you couldn't successfully double your investment within 10 years. It's a pretty insane thing to do to pull your money out of the stock market when it seems like it's all gravy.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to make one caveat, which was this was only applying to non-tax advantaged accounts. Because one... All of the tax advantages give you kind of an immediate, what, like 30% return on your money. So that's huge. And then second, I've talked about this in other articles, but there's an excellent financial trick, I think, to hiding money from yourself in the sense that a lot of your savings and your investment work will be improved if you don't give yourself the option to pull money out of things you've decided to focus it on. I feel great about those kinds of investments but then this also applies to like angel investing in startups, right? So once you put money into a startup that you're betting on, you basically can't take that money out.
1: Right? Like right. definitely can't.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's there. Or buying real estate. It's a pretty financially painful thing to get out of in the short term. You know, there's that value in tying up some money in investments that are very difficult to liquidate. My issue with general like personal investment funds, right? And like, just putting money into index funds is I think it's a great strategy if you have limited upside in the other options for what you can do with your money. But for somebody who's gone through the, you know, like three years of trying to figure it out, and then finally getting to the point where they can comfortably turn ideas plus effort into like money and wealth, then your dollar starts to go a lot further by investing in things that you control really good long term returns in the stock market might be like nine percent per year, and yeah, that's gonna give you a doubling time of what like six, seven years. you know there might be bumps in that if you just started getting in a year ago, like all of your gains been wiped out, now. <laughs> um and so yeah, it was just kind of a thought exercise of like, all right, if I look at everything that I can do with whatever cash that's being kicked off into savings from my projects? What's the best use of it? And I think just like investing in yourself eventually makes the most sense, right? Like do a certain amount of the tax advantage investing to make sure that you're covered in retirement. and you know, like hopefully (laughs) these accounts and everything last until then, right? Like who really knows what the financial system is going to be like in 40 years, but do that enough and to like protect yourself from doing something stupid with it. But then with the rest, it's like, spending it on learning and on building things that can have these incredible returns, I think makes a lot more sense. Say you've got like $10,000 to throw at either investment funds or into a project. You could throw it into uh, investment funds and, you know, maybe that'll be $20,000 in seven, eight, 10 years, or you throw $10,000 into a side project and you use that to like Fund some initial spend on contractors and some like basic design, and then you're doing a bunch of stuff on your own and then in say like in a year or two, that ten thousand dollars is either going to be nothing or it's probably going to be like a hundred thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars right like it's very unlikely that in two years it will be twelve thousand dollars <laughs> right but that might be what it would be in in an index fund, and even if it goes to zero, you've learned so much by doing it. Somebody else uh, uses the word tuition, right, for side projects that end up failing. You think, oh, my God, I just wasted $10,000 on this thing. I could have put it in an index fund or whatever. It's like, no, 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 you, you spent $10,000 on learning whatever you learned from that experience. And now it's your job to like take that education into the next experiment. And that's just like so, so valuable. I don't have kids. Uh, I'm still really young. I can afford to be a little bit riskier with this kind of thinking. I might not say that that makes as much sense if you're 45 and you've got two to three kids and like preschool and a mortgage and everything, right? Like, okay, maybe you do need to put more into normal investment funds. But if you have some of the flexibility to forgo slow money in terms of like fast experimenting and learning, I think it makes a lot of sense.
1: If you go back and replace your logic for investing in the project and just say, swap out project for bitcoin <laughs> that's the reason i've bought a lot of bitcoin because i look the most surprising outcome here is that it's the same price in 5 years right like that, yeah yeah it would floor me it would floor me if it's just the same or a little bit higher it's going to be nothing or something this reminds me so much of I was in a conversation with a good friend who had just landed a high paying job and he'd said, man, well, in like 16 or 24 months, I'm going to have $30,000 to invest. You know, Dan, what would be your advice? And I said, well, you know, it's not really enough to sort of do anything interesting from an investing perspective. So probably your best investment is to try to buy back some of your time. Yeah. And figure out then what you can do with your time. And just this look of like ultimate dissatisfaction came across his face. Like it was the (laughs) worst possible answer I could give him, you know? Why doesn't it resonate with people?
0: I think it's just because it's so counter to the normal advice. Like the normal advice is save money, put, you know, 10% of your monthly paycheck into a 401k. And then by the time you retire, you could have like $2 million. And I think there are a lot of people for whom that is a pretty good option, right? Like, I don't think this is going to apply to pretty much anyone listening to this podcast, but there are a lot of people who don't get their meaning from their work. Yeah. They get it from their relationships or from their church or from their, like, fitness activities or whatever, right? Like, not everyone has to get their meaning from building businesses i think it's hard to recognize that because it's so important to us but a lot of people yeah that's just like not where they're going to be happy and if work to you is just a means to an end then yeah that i think that strategy is perfect but if you enjoy work and you want work to be meaningful then yeah I, i think it makes so much more sense to invest it in actually like building up those skills so that you can get that like outsized return, right? Because the the compounding interest on investing in yourself, if you're sufficiently self-motivated to build businesses and like grow things that can consistently be worth more and more money, like the compounding interest on that is so much higher than seven or 8%. It's a very different way of thinking about it. But a heuristic I kind of like that I think I got from The Millionaire Fastlane, which isn't necessarily a book I'd recommend, but it's got a couple of good heuristics in it. One of which being that, like we're saying right now, $30,000 or whatever in an index fund is not going to really do anything for your life. So it might on like 40 years or 50 years, but in terms of like getting somewhere interesting, that strategy makes a lot more sense when you have a lot more cash to put in the market. Let's say you've got like two million dollars or whatever that you can put in index funds and you can safely take out four percent per year then awesome you 've got like an eighty thousand dollars a year income while you 're doing nothing right now things are getting a little interesting, but up until that point, it probably makes more sense to spend the money on yeah building up yourself, building up a project, something that can give you a lot more return.
1: You have an interesting thought that jumped out to me in this distinction between money and wealth, and you say you can have work that is high in wealth creation. Or work that is high in income generation. And typically they're different kinds of work. That jumped out at me. I was like, wait, what?
0: (laughs) Anybody who's working on a business in the early days is primarily generating wealth with very little income, right? Uh, A classic example would be that when you, like, say, even just starting this podcast, right? In the beginning, it probably didn't have obviously tons of listeners or create much money for you, but it was creating wealth in the sense that you were creating something valuable, right? Something that you would eventually be able to quote unquote sell to yourself or others for like a lot more money than what obviously was able to do at the beginning. Or if you're building, like, let's say that you're building a new web app and you're sitting at home coding for three months and you haven't even released it to the world but as you're coding up this web app you're you're creating wealth for yourself in the value of what you're building there's some difficult to quantify value that is going up as you work on building out this tool that is not necessarily being reflected in the money that you are taking out of it and it's a useful thing to think about because there are a lot of jobs that are very high income generation But very low wealth generation, and I think these are the jobs that get really attractive to kids coming out of college and whatnot. Right, so if you're about to graduate from college and you get a sweet offer for like seventy thousand dollars a year to go work at, you know, Accenture or something, that's a great income generating job. You're not really generating any wealth in that role. Whereas if you go and you start work on, say, like a, a website for yourself where you're advertising your freelance design skills, like the, the freelance design work is generating income for you, but then that website is actually generating wealth because the longer that website sits out there, the more other people link to it, the more people could find it and contact you, the more reviews you could get on it, the more testimonials you could get on it. Like all of that is making that website more and more valuable and making it more able to generate money for you or something that you could then go out and sell later. Income or money is like actual money in the bank. And then wealth is something that either generates money or can be sold for money. Most people don't become worth huge amounts of money without doing wealth building. Right. I think that especially for young people, biasing more towards wealth generation makes way more sense than biasing towards income generation. Because again, like income generation doesn't compound that much, right? Your role in a company might go up. But if you start building things that can generate wealth for you from an early age, that can really, really compound. And honestly, the easiest version of it is just like building an online reputation of some sort, right? So starting a blog, being active on Twitter, building an Instagram, like anything like that is the simplest version of this, just something that is steadily increasing in value that, again, you can then use to generate money. I
1: love this distinction because I think it's where the practice of entrepreneurship sits. Someone asked me, is every like small business owner an entrepreneur? And this is where I point at the distinction. They're overlapping concepts, but if you can see value that's not yet agreed upon, that's entrepreneurship. And your goal is to basically make the value legible and eventually trade some of it for money. It's a remarkably head-scratching response to a lot of people because... Here again, we're offering something that's illegible to people as sort of the path, you know?
0: It's so hard because so many people, I think, index themselves in society on their income and their job. I think this is part of why like, a lot of entrepreneurs with vastly different bank accounts can still be very good friends and can still communicate on a lot of things and still be close you know, they could just be at different stages in that journey. But and again, a lot of that like money could be just tied up in the wealth of the business, right? So I think that's part of the, you know, the like hoodies and flip flops idea Mm -hmm. is that the normal outward status symbols don't necessarily work for people who might have 99.99% of their net worth tied up in something that's illiquid. It's just kind of a different way of thinking about comparisons amongst people that I think for a lot of people who grow up in what is a pretty materialistic society, it can be difficult to adjust to that because, you know, like it or not, most of us do index other people on, you know, how much we think they make in their job.
1: Why don't you think minimalism is a healthy philosophy?
0: I think it just kind of became like uh performative virtue in some way. It's this idea that you'll be happier if you like have fewer things and if you downsize and you make like a cleaner space. And I'm not sure that's true because in pretty much every culture throughout time, there's been like a certain value associated with collecting high value things and designing a home and a space and an area right that is truly like yours and feels meaningful to you and then we have this trend that pops up that's sort of i think a a fight against materialism minimalism says no you know that won't make you happy what will make you happy is like wanting less and focusing on other things it might be saying like you should be focused on your relationships or spending time in nature or reading or these more like simpler pastimes, right? And there's, look, there's nothing wrong with any of that, right? And I I do agree. I think for the most part, you're going to be much happier spending time in nature than like going shopping every weekend, right? But it's a, it's kind of a silly either or dichotomy. And again, it's become this kind of performative thing, right? Like performative minimalism. Like, look how few things I own, right? Like, look how small my apartment is. And it's become a way to make money, right? Because I think the nice thing about minimalism is that it's a, it's a way to try to be happy without spending money. And everyone wants to be happy. And so they're always going to be trying new ways to be happy. And minimalism catches on because it's a way to pursue that. You know, without having to spend anything. Right. <laughs> except, you know, for like buying books on minimalism and buying, you know, Marie Kondo organizing drawers. It's a little bit silly to me because I think that the real solution is to collect things that are meaningful to you and to build like a place that is beautiful to you and not try to feel like you're a bad person if you want. Nice shoes, or if you want tons of books, or if you want like a nice yard around your house, right? Like, there's no rule that those things are bad or that those desires are bad. But I think the minimalism crowd can get kind of condescending, almost as if you're like unenlightened if you don't think that the ideal life is living out of a backpack. And in my experience, most of the people who are being super minimalist can't afford not to be super minimalist and it's kind of a coping mechanism and they give that up as soon as they like get into a financial situation where they don't have to project how happy they are not making much money
1: brutal i love it
0: (laughs) it's the same thing i think with a lot of like like being a digital nomad is a great way to build a business starting out and like that's how i started out but i don't think it's a good way to be happy long term why is that Because you don't have a good community, right? Like you don't really have a home base. You don't have like a spot that really feels yours. You don't have a big local neighborhood of people who kind of share a lot of your background and share your environment. And there's always this sense of, well, I'm going to leave eventually, so I'm not going to invest a ton in my relationships here. Or there's a sense of, well, this person's probably going to leave in the next like six to 12 months, so I'm not going to invest too much in my relationship with them. I didn't realize how big that was an effect on my like mental landscape until I like really decided to settle down in Austin, getting to know everyone in the restaurants I go to, hosting more dinners and things for friends. I think you can do this well as a nomad, and there are definitely nomad hubs where this is easier. But I do think that it's it's a great way to get started when you need to keep your burn rate super low. But I think that as soon as you can afford to not do that, you should like find a home base and stop living out of a backpack
1: why did you underestimate it? Like, yeah, I can understand the relationships thing and the dinner thing. What was the cash of that emotionally for you?
0: There's this idea of optionality and freedom that is good in moderation, but dangerous at the extremes. So having optionality in business can be really good, right? It's a lot better to have $100,000 in cash than $100,000 in gold bars that you can't easily like exchange for cash in the event of an emergency. Gold might appreciate a bit more over time, but having cash gives you a lot more options for what to do with it. But this optionality idea, this like obsession with freedom kind of gets taken to an extreme in certain circles and for lack of a better like designation, I would say it's the like 20 something Tim Ferris marketing bro crowd which I'm a part of, right? Like <laughs> that that includes me. <laughs> It's this idea that like, oh, you should always be maximizing for options, like obligations are bad. You don't want to be tied down to anything, right? And this is where you get a lot of, I think, like commitment issues from, right? So it makes it harder to commit to relationships because, oh, there might be a better partner for me around the corner makes it harder to commit to cities because, oh, there might be a better city somewhere else that I can enjoy more, right? It makes it harder to commit to business ideas because, you know, if you just keep starting up other side projects, like you might find a better one than the one you're already working on. And the issue with obsessing over optionality is it prevents you from truly focusing on something and investing in something that can give you those really great compound returns over time. You're never going to find like a perfect business idea. You're just going to have to pick something eventually that you're willing to focus on for two, three, five, 10 years and keep focusing on it and not let yourself get too distracted. And it applies to cities, right? Like you're never going to find the perfect city. You just need to pick one that you really, really like and then make it perfect by investing in building up that community and that environment there. And you're never going to find the perfect relationship. You need to find one that's like awesome. And then you need to invest in like making it ideal. I think that we do have so many options now just from the internet and from like carrying phones around everywhere. It feels like we never need to pick anything because there's always going to be a better option. But like picking things is a great source of happiness because once you commit to that, you can get so much more out of investing in that. So just
1: warping in here to say that my call to Nat was originally inspired by an article he wrote, about an ongoing Twitter storm, about how many hours a day you need to work to be successful. And the dichotomy falls into two camps, both led by people so famous they are known by their initials alone. Prolific vlogger Gary Vaynerchuk, or Gary V, and the creator of Ruby on Rails, David Hanemeyer Hansen, or DHH. The reason I called you today was because um, I was challenged on Twitter to have a reasonable talk about this divide that's emerging on the internet. On the one hand, you have Gary Vee and the Gary Vee bros who say, you know, it's awesome to like work all day long and check your phone and pick up a call at dinner and hustle your face off. And then on the other side of the divide, DHH has really been... You know, glorifying this idea of we only work four days a week. I've always believed in this. I can't believe other people don't only work four days a week, kind of thing. When I was researching this topic, your name came up and you wrote this wonderful article called Stop Struggle Porn. And you wrote that struggle porn has normalized sustained failure. So let's talk about what struggle porn is a little bit. And then maybe we can figure out where we fall in this spectrum between DHH on the one hand, and, and Gary Vee on the other.
0: I saw a VC tweet something that said, being an entrepreneur is like waking up every day and eating glass, right? And I was just like, man, one, if that's what you expect your portfolio companies, then I feel really sorry for them. <laughs> and two, it's just like, you know, that doesn't like make sense to me, right? Because there definitely are days where you wake up and eat glass. But to say that that's like, the normal state of things is absurd right and i'd always been kind of annoyed by any obsession with like working harder as being the solution to your problems because that i think is just not played out in really any environment like a good analogy i like to use is like fitness right where if you want to get really strong or you want to be able to run super far or whatever like it's a mix of intense exercise and rest right and it's as much rest and downtime as it is like the intensity and cognitive work is very much the same you can have these extremely intense periods and you can pull a few all nighters and whatnot but that should be the rarity not the norm but you know then i i see it in some of the entrepreneurial community where people do Have this kind of like performative hustling.
1: I'm going to steal that from you. I will credit. (laughs) I will say performative hustling the rest of my life. And the first three times, I'll cite your name, and then it's mine, buddy.
0: (laughs) Sounds good. Yeah, that that might have been a more moderate title for that article, but uh, (laughs) no more struggle porn. Definitely got a lot more clicks. I think it's very much this element of when you can't talk about how many customers you're getting or how many employees you're hiring or how many products you're launching you can talk about how hard you're working right and it gives you a sense of relief and accomplishment when it's really just a vanity metric i generally dislike the marketing to newbie entrepreneurs at large community right and i think like the big examples of that would be you know Gary V obviously some of James Altucher's old stuff.
1: Why aren't you into it?
0: Well, because I think that, sound a little brutal, but like, I'll just say it, right? It's like most of those people aren't going to succeed. Most entrepreneurs are not going to succeed, right? Like most entrepreneurs are going to fail and then they're going to go back to a normal job and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like I've seen a lot of people like start down that path, try it out for a year or two and then say, you know what? I like don't like this, right? Like this isn't making me happy. It's not working. You know, I liked my life better when I had a normal job. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to feel. And I really think the only people who stick with entrepreneurship long term are the ones who literally cannot be happy doing anything else, because it is kind of like a a decent amount of stress to load on yourself. It doesn't have to be eating glass every day, but it is an extra level of stress that you have to sort of be willing to endure just so that you don't have to like go into an office. And I don't think most people are wired that way. But when you've got this like mass entrepreneur marketing type brand that subsists on convincing everyone that they should be quitting their jobs and becoming an entrepreneur, you kind of have to encourage people to focus on vanity metrics because that will keep them engaged with the material when their businesses aren't working. I like the dynamite uh, circle a lot because, you know, it's very low bullshit, right? Like within the forum, within the people who are in it it's very like honest. There's no like marketing noise around it. Right. Whereas in the performative hustling community or the struggle porn community, the only way to keep a lot of those people engaged who might not be having much success is to say, like, just keep working harder, keep working harder, keep working harder. And like, you'll get your rewards. But the world just like doesn't work that way. And I think a lot of people get seriously harmed by thinking that, oh, well, if I just pull a few more all-nighters and work on weekends and stop having a social life, then I'm like magically going to figure this out. But it's usually not the case. So I have those share
1: those same concerns
0: yet. I know this is easy. It's
1: like sort of like a non-falsifiable opinion conversation or whatever. But like on the other side, I find myself being a little irked too. Because when people say, oh, you know, you should have a sensible work-life balance and stuff, I think... I don't really know if that's true either. Yeah. Critique this statement. All variables being equal, those people who've spent the most time focused on building an asset that they own ultimately have the highest likelihood of building a valuable asset. What do you think of that?
0: That can only be like half of the equation, right? Unless we get really generous in how we think about time spent. And I think the easiest example of this would be like the Bitcoin white paper. The creation of Bitcoin is one of the most valuable things ever created, literally ever. And the white paper is what, like 10 pages long? We don't really know how long it took to actually create it initially, I think. But it can't have taken an amount of time that we would consider comparable to what it's worth now. Unless we're factoring in all of the time spent mining and whatnot, right? Like, it, it's sort of hard. I think we can, we can take that definition, we can make it work, but I do think there's an incompleteness to it in the sense that working super hard 16 hours a day breaking rocks will never create SpaceX. Right. Like, the thing you choose to focus on makes a big difference. And I think this is like a Derek Sivers chart or something, but like, the idea is a multiplier on execution where... You do need to have that really good idea, but the really good idea is only a multiplier on how hard you work. It's not like a linear increase or like there's some sort of natural band. I actually don't buy the argument that humans have like a limited creative working capacity in a week. I think humans have a limited forced work capacity in a week, right? Like you can only force yourself to do stuff for a certain number of effective hours, but when you're really like engaged in something and you like absolutely love every moment of it, I think you can work pretty like wild hours where i take issue is yeah at the point where you feel like you need to be forcing yourself to work all hours of the day even though you don't enjoy it right like that's an issue and that's when it starts to feel like a struggle right like when you're just like hustling too hard and i i take issue with like the dhh camp too because you also shouldn't feel bad if you want to work a lot <laughs> right right like there's nothing wrong with that like that's perfectly fa- the issue is feeling like you need to aspire to someone else's idea of like acceptable work amounts.
1: Yeah, and, and often that's in an employment situation. So I think a lot of DHH's critiques are for meant for people that are feel like they're being coerced in the work. That's where I think the whole thing is a little bit murky for entrepreneurs. They're not in the situation that I think DHH is commenting on very often which I think it can be part of the irritating element of it. Because it's like, dude, you wrote like all these programming languages and all this kind of stuff. Like, don't tell me that you were doing four hours a day.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the reason you can do four days a week or whatever now is because you created so much wealth earlier on in your life. Exactly. It's like, yeah, if I invented Ruby on Rails, I bet I could like chill out a little bit more too. <laughs> right? <laughs> Honestly, actually, this ties back nicely to what we were talking about earlier on with like wealth versus income. And I would agree with DHH that you absolutely should not feel like you have to work 80 hours a week to just generate like a high income from an investment banking job. That's where I get really just like frustrated and sad is when I see friends from college going to these jobs where they just like fucking hate it working like 16 hour days five six days a week and like coming in on weekends and they're just completely burned out and then you're like drinking a ton and like pounding red bulls in the morning it's just like, man that is not a good life right like there are way better ways to live than feeling like you have to work that hard all the time to be successful people feeling like they have to do that to themselves to have some modicum of success like that i don't think is healthy either
1: so the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Nat, is um, running your agency. Because it's the, I think it's fair to say the most popular business model amongst listeners. You seem to be pretty good at it. And I would also consider it one of the business models that requires the most entrepreneurial skill. Do you think that's true?
0: What do you mean by requires the most entrepreneurial skill? Just because it's such a perfectly competitive business idea?
1: or Also because it's, I think they're hard to run well. It's hard to maintain margins. I think,
0: you know, I go back and forth on that. So, well, there's, there's, there's two questions there. One is because it's perfectly competitive and two, because it's hard to run well with margins and everything. So in terms of perfectly competitiveness, I'll start by saying, I don't think most people should start an agency unless you've already spent a couple of years, at least building up influence and building up respect in the industry. The reason that we can run a really effective agency and that we've been able to grow really fast is that I was giving away marketing advice for three years before starting it. So I was you know, writing a lot of blog posts and I was on Twitter and I was going on podcasts and I was building wealth in terms of marketing influence. And then it was very easy to turn that wealth of marketing influence into income via the agency, right? So... Where I see a lot of people struggle is they say, okay, I don't really know what to do. I'm going to start like a marketing agency. How do I do it? And my advice is usually not very helpful because I say, all right, we'll just blog for free about marketing for three years and then it's going to be really easy.
1: Well, what's even worse, I I want to make an observation. Like the real talk here from having observed your story is I've seen tons of people follow that path anyway and they struggle with their agencies in part because people don't see them as that smart at what they do. That's got to be where part of this margins coming from, right?
0: It is, right? A, a lot of it and a lot of success is just being like having some respect in the industry and having those other companies you've worked with and those case studies and you know being able to show success and confidence in what you do because like a lot of marketing agencies are kind of scammy. How so? especially in like SEO space there's just a lot of bad actors who are doing really terrible work like outsourcing article creation to India and churning out shit for people and like pretending that this is what they need i see a lot of examples of people kind of like scaring site owners with like technical issues that are like not even that big of concerns there's just a lot of nonsense there and same with like local SEO too right like charging a company a thousand dollars a month so that you can like host their website and manage their like lead pages forms. I mean, Hey, it's a great way to make money, but I don't know. And you're probably helping the business if you are generating leads for them, but there's a lot of scamminess, right? And I think that's why people are put off by marketing agencies when they talk to them. And they're always a little on the defensive, especially with SEO. So yeah, you, you do have to have kind of that. I think that authority to like break through some of that noise, Almost every client we talk to has been burned by at least one SEO agency in some way. So it's a tough market to be in in that sense if you don't have some kind of authority to go off of initially. So that's, I think, how you get over the first part of it. And it feeds into the second part, right? In the sense of like margin and running it and growing it. Like if you aren't kind of a trusted expert, you can't charge as much. Like you can't get as good of talent. You might not be able to like, get as good of writers or as good of clients. So, a lot of it just stems how did you
1: decide like what to charge for what? Because there's sort of infinite flexibility. So how did you come to that idea of how to charge a customer?
0: Yeah, it was a combination of two things. You know, one our costs and what's our goal margin and then two what are people comfortable with? And within those bounds, how can we be a little bit more aggressive so that we can win more business? I actually think that The agency and the consulting model is kind of like messed up in some ways because there's this advice of like, oh, just keep increasing your prices, keep increasing your prices until like you get pushback. And that's great if you want to have a really small boutique group, but you've made it much harder on yourself to prove positive ROI and you've closed off your ability to grow your business because We could limit our client scope significantly and maybe charge like 50% more for what we do, but I'd rather charge less, still make a healthy margin and be able to just completely destroy other larger agencies that are like bloated and are charging way more for worse work. There's a lot of value in like not being a budget option and not being super premium option, but being like premium at more budgety prices. And we're, we're still not cheap. But that's sort of like been an interesting thing to me is that you can really win in the industry by doing a great job for less. And the only way you do that is one through having like lower marketing expenses and whatnot by having more inbound and having more authority. And two just like really, really good systems focus, really good process focus and making sure everything is like super well organized and managed internally so that fewer people can do more while still being effective?
1: This is a a point that I love because you can really get rah-rahs from the entrepreneurs who are struggling by saying, oh, you should charge more, you're worth more. And and you can certainly sell programs that way and you can sell yourself that way because it's the message people want to hear. But I think that the truth of the matter is very much closer to what you were saying. There's this moment, I always remember, we were in like Post Event Glow at DC Austin a few years ago, which is an event we host in the city. One of the attendees was basically just sitting me down and having a heart to heart and being like, "Man, I can't believe you're charging $600 for this." Like, "You should be charging at least 1500." Like just going on and on about how much money he's going to make out of this thing and Jason Cohen was standing there. He said, "That is what you want." you want that margin there that there's a sort of a a lot of value in having that margin where people feel like it's a wonderful value.
0: Yeah. Well, and all the best companies in the world make their product better and cheaper. Teslas are getting better and cheaper. The iPhones have increased the range of what you can get. So you can get something way better than what you could get three years ago for cheaper. If you look at pretty much any product industry, their goal is to like improve their product and make it less expensive
1: except for the golf industry hate to break it to (laughs) you if if you're in the market for a new driver (laughs) luxury goods
0: maybe but yeah like okay so there, there are definitely exceptions right but then in the service industry there's this weird advice of like oh you should keep your quality the same and charge more obviously if you're underpricing yourself you should do that right and so you should find where the market starts to push back on your pricing and that's like a good starting point once you feel like you've found around that equilibrium, like just try to make it better and better at that price or even better and better at that price or lower. That's like a great way to increase your competitive advantage.
1: A lot of people who have clients, they get stressed out by them. It's tough having clients. They have trouble clients, less profitable clients, whatever. How have you made it work for you? Like what is the sweet spot?
0: There's a couple of things we've learned in this. One, if you have any sense at all during the sales process that this might be an annoying client to work with, just cut it off right there. Because that sense has been right 100% of the time. I've never been in the sales process and gone, "Mm, you know, this guy might be a dick, and then been wrong later. Right. Right. So that's like step number one you can take. Step number two is providing a higher value service so that you can work with higher value clients. So as a simple example, if you're banging out like $50 articles, you're going to get clients who want to pay $50 an article. If you're banging out $500 articles, you're going to get clients who understand the value of a $500 article. And those clients are going to be much Mm -hmm. more pleasant to work with. So we charge probably like higher end of the SEO and content marketing market. And that lets us work with bigger, more established businesses who like understand the value of investing in content SEO for the long run. Working with founders is frequently a mistake. Not always, but it can be a mistake. Really? Yeah, for a couple of reasons. One, if you're in a marketing agency and you're dealing directly with a founder, then that suggests that they haven't yet built up their business enough to hire a marketing person. And so they still feel that they need to control everything. And so they're going to be higher maintenance to deal with. Interesting. So that's not a rule for us. But whenever we talk to a founder who wants to hire us and have the founder be the point of contact, we're always just a little more hesitant, right? Like we want to really be sure that they're hiring us to delegate, not to like manage us and be in the weeds all the time. The biggest time where that's an issue is if the founder is a marketing person. Whereas if it's like a developer or a designer and they're like, yeah, you know, what? I don't understand this area. I trust you just like go. Those are actually some of the best relationships because they really get like letting somebody else handle stuff. That can be one thing to, to be wary of. And then just like working with businesses that are making money. I know it sounds stupid to say it, but
1: a lot of businesses that are going down, they might think about investing in marketing.
0: So that's what you have to avoid is you want to make sure that a company is hiring you because they are growing and they want to grow faster, not because they are dying and they want you to save them. If it was already on that track before you got there, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to turn it around. And in like almost every one of those cases, they're going to badger the shit out of you for a couple months and then cancel the contract early. So
1: I want to plug my own concept here. I call this filling efficiency gaps versus filling knowledge gaps. You don't want to be like an agency on the exploratory committee for your client. You want to be pumping up something that's already working, essentially. Yeah. Could you give us a a sense for... Uh, the scale of your business right now?
0: Yeah, yeah. So we've got eleven full time people. We did about two million dollars in revenue last year. I think, you know, this year we're probably on track for anywhere from three to five, sort of hard to say. You know, I honestly don't know where that puts us in the agency world. But it's, you know, the thing that I like about it is that we're at the point where the roles are well defined and people can own certain areas. I'm mostly focused on the business, not in the business. And that's where I think I provide the most value. And, you know, we've been able to get to this point in like just a little over two years. So I think that's pretty fast from agency standards. But yes, again, if we're talking about like thinking about when did you actually start working on it, you could also argue I started working on it back in like 2015 when I started my blog. About how many clients do you have right now? We have about 26 right now. Our client size ranges a lot. So on the smaller end, we have like just link building projects, which are usually like anywhere from 3 to 5k. And then, I mean, we've had some crazy projects where we're doing like 50 or 100 articles a month. And those are like, multiple like five figure projects. So it's like there's a big variance in size. And that's the other thing that's been kind of nice with our setup is that we kind of have that flexibility with our editorial team and all the writers we have relationships with and just our like strategy is it can scale to different sizes very well.
1: I've met a lot of agency owners who run multimillion dollar agencies, and a lot of them aren't really happy about the business they built for a variety of reasons. Like it can be difficult to sell. It can take a lot of management. Sometimes they're not, their personal draw can get depleted. What's the end game of of a multi-million dollar agency? You know, how do you think about that? You could make a lot of money with like five clients.
0: That's the interesting thing is like, you actually would make a lot more money being like a solo consultant to four or five clients than like hiring people and building an agency, right? You know, I started Growth Machine because I didn't know exactly what else to start at the time. I had been doing some of this work as a consultant and I wanted to start a business, but I didn't really know what idea to focus on. And uh, somebody gave me really good advice that like, if you don't really know what what to make, then make money. Build something that can generate Wealth and generate money, so that you can then direct that at other things. And so, you know, within Growth Machine, the thing that excites us long term is over time being able to move away from a purely client focus and focus more on our own properties. We built up uh, an e-commerce tea company. We've built up a writer matchmaking service. We are launching like our first Shopify app in a few weeks. Like we're we're starting to build some of our own projects. And those are very exciting to us because then we get to apply some of our knowledge to our own things instead of exclusively selling it off to clients. And as we build up more of that, then more of our revenue can come from our own channels, and we can be more and more selective with the clients we take on.
1: Agree with your approach here. You know, agencies are an excellent petri dish. It's a fantastic way to test stuff or you know eat your own dog food, all that kind of stuff. I used to work in in an agency that was. About the size of your company, maybe a little bigger. And we had like a lot of our side projects inside the company would basically die on the vine because the clients would always get prioritized. How do you find that balance in in the company?
0: Honestly, I don't think I do a good job of this. (laughs) There, you know, I would still consider us in the stage where we're trying to get to the point where we can really focus on our side projects. They kind of like get started in little experts of energy. And then we get distracted by client work, like you said, and then maybe we can focus on this more. And then we get distracted again. The one that's done well is cup and leaf. But I think the reason that's done well is that it was like half a growth machine project, half me and my wife, Cosette, working on it. And she eventually like took the whole thing over and she's been running with it. Right, So a big part of them succeeding is having somebody who can focus fully on running it and making sure it's not just like a few people's side projects in the agency because you need somebody whose you know job it is to focus on building the thing otherwise yeah it's gonna fall by the wayside because like there's just gonna be too many other things distracting you for you to really like get it done, and other st- client stuff is always going to be more urgent, so I think you just have to grow to a point where you can hire someone to like focus on the side project or side projects. And in an agency, it's hard to have like a non-revenue generating salary. Yes, because like you said, margins are pretty tight. Especially
1: a project that, you know, there's this dream, which I think is a decent one, which is like, man, we got all these resources here if we applied them to something that we owned. The problem is when you put someone in charge of that project and their role is to siphon said resources, that can create a lot of friction. It actually happened in our case. The story went that we had a $3.5 million agency, which eventually did beget a $3.5 million side project. But we started like, two or three side projects that basically failed. And the one that worked was an equity partnership. So it worked because the partners had equity, but the downside is it pissed off everybody in the first company. It's challenging, but it's also, there's tons of opportunity there.
0: If you can figure it out, then it is a great vehicle for working on those kinds of side projects. Uh, You just want to make sure that you don't put the agency's life in jeopardy as you're doing it.
1: Last question, Matt. it's the hardest one. About 80% of our audience owns businesses, but 20% are that group that really want to. And you were in that camp at one point. I'm curious what kind of advice you'd have for people that are looking to get into the entrepreneurial world.
0: My advice on this has changed over time, but I think the simplest way to get started that I recommend now is just get good enough at a skill that someone will pay you to do that skill. And not in the sense of a job, but in the sense that like you can sell the output of your brain and energy for money. So the simplest examples obviously are like freelance marketing or freelance design or freelance development. But less obvious ones could even be like doing woodworking and going to a local like farmers market and selling your woodworking there. When you start doing that, you get in the habit of Completing work on your own time, asking for money for it, and then finding ways to increase value and like make more money. I think that people get hung up on needing to have a great business idea to get started. But I find that if you just start like doing work and finding ways to ask for money for your work, the business ideas kind of naturally arise out of what you're interested in. And not being too hung up on like, well, how big of a business could you actually build from this? Because I don't think that's like a helpful thought exercise at the start. I know a number of people who like, you know, thought they were just starting a little side project, side hustle. And that side hustle is now like, you know, a $10 million business. It's hard to really predict that from the outset. And if you limit the scope of what you're willing to work on based on what you think could turn into you know, a 10 or hundred million dollar company, you're going to throw out a lot of perfectly good ideas. So I feel like just getting in the habit of like doing work and asking for money for it in whatever way is exciting enough to you that you'll stick to it. That is definitely like the easiest and probably highest probability of success way to get started.
1: That's fantastic, Nat. thanks for uh, joining us on the show.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun.
1: Big shout out to Nat Eliason. We appreciate you coming by the show. We're gonna post the show notes, the links, everything mentioned here today, including our daily live stream, the pod shop, over at tropicalmba.com. Boss man.
2: I need a drink. I'm not I'm like uh, my throat's all dry from all this talking. Too much podcasting. Too for much you? podcasting, man. <laughs> Five days a week it's just got me dry. I feel like I need maybe a surgery or something. What what happens? I don't know. Maybe just a drink. It's been
1: wonderful. We appreciate you joining us. We hope you're all having a productive, fruitful day. We will be back, as always, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Or for those of you who want to hang out with us on a daily basis, at least until this quarantine lets up, me and you will be hanging out here at the Pod Shop every day at 12 noon, NYC time.
2: See you tomorrow morning. All right, boss, man.